Guys, I'm glad to be here this morning. I hope you are too. Uh, a couple points first before I mention anything about the message. Uh, the first is I loved seeing Pam Foreman get up here and talk about the uh, potlucks. Um, Pam and a group of gals are serving sort of in an event oversight capacity and, and it's taken the stumbling efforts of the guys in leadership to a whole new level. It was I told her this morning it was exactly what we needed. She's doing a great job. The gals working with her doing a great job. Same with Abby Stewart. It's just fun to see folks who are gifted and enthused about serving doing that and that becomes contagious and so I hope as you're here, uh, seeing those folks, hearing those folks that you get some of that enthusiasm as well. And last, thinking of folks that are serving the church, if you're part of the worship meeting after church, you know who you are, make sure you end up at High V. Yep, be there, okay. Uh, you know, there's a day in history, still memorable, uh, still shapes the way we think, uh, comes back in financial news reports, uh, commonly October 29th, 1929, called Black Tuesday, it was really the onset of what we've called the Great Depression, not just here in the United States, but around the world. You know, if the market dips 10% or so, as it did a week or two ago, there's almost inevitably references to that singular day and all that followed. And, you know, if, if we didn't grow up in that, and probably no one here, I don't think even Nancy is old enough to have grown up through that, Hard to, hard to put ourselves in those shoes. What was it like to be living in that time? Let me share a few stories of people who lived through that day and uh, not much longer. Uh, this goes to the image you're seeing. A vice president of the Earl Radio Corporation jumped to his death from the window of a Manhattan hotel. His suicide note read, we're broke. Last April, I was worth $100,000. Today, I'm $24,000 in the red. Literally, the folks were, were literally. Some of the stories are exaggerated, but some of those are absolutely true about what people did because of the losses on that singular day. Uh, Winston Churchill happened to be in the United States that day. He was at the, what is it, the Savoy Plaza Hotel. He says this, he awakened the day after Black Tuesday by the noise of a crowd outside his hotel. He said, under my very window, a gentleman cast himself down 15 stories and was dashed to pieces, causing a wild commotion and the arrival of the fire brigade. On Friday, November 8th, so almost two weeks later, J.J. Reardon, president of the county trust company, took a pistol from a teller's cage at his bank, went to his home in downtown Manhattan and shot himself. Historian William K. Klingemans wrote a book in 89 called The Year of the Great Crash. He articulates tons of real stories, real life and death stories about how people ended their lives after that day. He said uh, death by asphyxiation was the most common. In other words, people had gas in their house, they turned the gas on, closed the windows, and died of asphyxiation. Now, in all of those cases, you know, what you really had w was uh, in a single day, uh, people lost everything they had. So one day they're wealthy, the next day they're not. You know, one day uh, the future's bright, the next day they don't know what they're going to do. Uh, and it's not just, you know, you think in the sense of greed sometimes, not just in the sense of greed, right? 
if, if your bank accounts were wiped out today and you didn't know how you'd buy groceries tomorrow, what would that feel like? You know, not, not just this sense of a better lifestyle, but just, how am I going to feed my family? You know, what am I going to do? In one day, fortunes were wiped out. These folks didn't want to do. They didn't have a means of coping with that. And so many of them really did end their life. Guys, we're in the, the series Consider Job this morning, and I'm not sure I'll be successful in the way I would like to be. Uh, I hope to do two things this morning. And the first is this. Uh, the first is that I hope that you can enter into some kind of real, heartfelt, emotional depression. I say, no, that's not your typical message. So I don't want you to be encouraged on the front end. I want you to feel depressed, distressed. And it's for this reason. If we can read through the book of Job and not be impacted by the real loss he felt and by the real emotional, spiritual response, then you're not getting what God wants you to get out of this book. In fact, when you read the dialogues that occur later, none of it makes sense. It's just a, a literary device if you read it without coming to grips. In some way, right? Very imperfectly. We're, we're not able to enter into that fully. But if we don't make some attempt, if we don't succeed at some level of knowing what Job lost and what that felt like, then I think ultimately we not only don't get what God wants for us from the book, I think we end up disrespecting Job, this guy that God was bragging on in a way that I only hope he can brag on me or on us. So that's the front end. The, the second part is this. We live on the resurrection side of the cross. Job is an Old Testament saint that was justified by faith in God, and he had a real vital relationship with God. But he didn't have the Holy Spirit in the way we do. He, he didn't know the full revelation of God. He didn't know all that God was up to. So here's the distinction for you and I. On one hand, we want to know, we want to have some sense of what is it like to suffer greatly in the will of God, under the sovereign hand of God, while at the same time not doing so without hope. And that's the difficulty. That's the challenge. Uh, how do you suffer greatly? Friends, God calls us to suffering always. Calls us not always in life, not at all stages of life, but all of us will suffer. And what does that look like and how do we do that well? And also this. One of the things that you see in this book, right, is when Job's friends trying to interact with him, they have no, they have no reference point from which to interact in his life where it's really at. And sometimes when you and I are talking to ourselves in points of depression or talking to other people, we make the mistake of saying some simplistic remedy that's not going to cut it when someone's suffering greatly. So we want to know something of the real loss of Job, and then we want to remember that in the midst of that for us, as believers, we never suffer without hope. We always have hope. God's always redemptively at work in our lives as we're going through these things. One of the challenges for us in having empathy or sympathy for others at all uh, is the age we live in. Did you guys read the story? This is just a week, maybe 10 days ago. Boko Haram in whatever country that is in Africa stole another 104 young women from a school. Did you see that? Kidnapped them. 
It's, I, I, seriously, I read it. My first thought was, did somebody insert the story from two or three years ago in the paper again? Nope, it's another group, kidnappings. And you know, my, my, my stomach dropped. My first instinct, of course, was emotional. It's like, I can't believe this. I'm angry. I'm disappointed. And you know what I did? And I clicked and I read the next news article. You know, I said a brief prayer and, and then my life goes on, right? We're overwhelmed with information and there's no way emotionally you can make sense of all that. You know, it was Stalin, Joseph Stalin, who brought about the deaths of tens of millions of people, said, truly, he said, one death is a tragedy, millions are a statistic. And you and I are awash in statistics today. And so real empathy, real sympathy with others can come with some difficulty. So we want to be aware of that as we're thinking about others. So we're going to get into the text in chapter 1, verses 13 through 19. God's already had, we've already talked about this, he's already had that heavenly court scene where God called the sons of God, the angels, they show up in front of God. God points out his blameless servant Job. Satan accuses him of a fickle, disloyal faith. God puts the life of his beloved servant into the hands of his adversary, Satan. And this is what Satan does. So there was a day when his, Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans and Isaiah tells us the Sabaeans are a very tall people group, prob probably from the Saudi Peninsula. The Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. This puts the stock market crash in some different kind of perspective, doesn't it? A thousand oxen, over 500 donkeys, and all the servants that were caring for them, except one. While he was yet speaking... There came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. While I was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans, so they're from Babylonian region, some raiding party, they formed three groups. They made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Now Job's just lost 7,000 sheep and all their shepherds, 3,000 camels and all their herdsmen. Same day. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons, all seven sons, your daughters, all three daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Later he'll say in chapter 2, verse 7, Satan strikes Job with all the sores from his foot to his head. So if you think about the great crash of 1929, those guys lost everything they had in a single day. You know, this crushing weight of loss. That's what Job went through, but I think multiple times more. Not just his wealth. Many of those servants would have been like members of their family too. You know, they were pretty well integrated. All of his sons all of his daughters, everything he'd known, everything he'd taken joy and delight in was gone in a moment, in a single day. So before we continue, I hope you have a study sheet. Just pause for a minute. I mean this seriously, pause for a minute. If God put your life in the hands of the adversary and he took from you 
what you valued most, what would it be? If you lost what you value most in a day, it could be two or three things, it doesn't have to be one, it could be two or three, it might, might be more than that. So you might think of things like maybe parents or spouse or children. It might be your health. Certainly that was part of what Job lost. It might be your finances, not because you're greedy, but, but because you're concerned about paying bills and taking care of family or other people, as Job did. But if, if the thing you fear, if the things you dread, if that loss occurred to you in a single point, single day, what would those things be? And, and what would that feel like? Now, right, even, even trying to do this exercise, right, doesn't get us very far, but it just starts to open our mind to what might that have felt like, what might that have been like for Job. Job lost everything he cared about in his children. He lost all the servants. He lost all his wealth. He lost all of his health in a day. What does that feel like? What does that feel like for us? You know, on top of that, and that loss would be great enough, but his loss goes beyond that because for Job, uh, Job loses his internal compass and his sense of relationship with God as well because he's confused. You, you remember God in heaven brags on Job. He's blameless. He's upright. He turns from evil. He's my man. And yet, Job's understanding now of God has just been turned upside down. He understood, and you'll see in the conversations with his friends if you haven't read it already. Job, in large measure, agrees with the, the worldview of his friends that if you are blameless and you are upright, God will bless you. And that's been Job's life intentionally, volitionally, we've talked about this. But now Job is treated like in the same way that he understands God would treat only the very wicked. And he doesn't know what to do with that. In fact, you'll see in the discussions that go through the book, he keeps saying to himself and to his friends, if I could only find God, I'd go and I'd sit down, almost like another courtroom scene, and I'd talk to him face to face. I'd explain. Somebody's made a cosmic mistake. What's going on, Lord? And he says, my problem with that is I can't find God to have that conversation. So his sense of connection with God is gone. His understanding of how God inter interacts with him and the world is gone. And he says, and the conversation I'd love to have with God, I can't because I can't find him. I feel disconnected. Friends, that's worse than the loss of family and friends. As, as hard as it is to get over the loss of things and people that are near and dear to us, life goes on, right? And time assuages those pains. But if, if you're a believer and your sense of connection with God, if that's turned upside down, that, that is another trial altogether. Very different. Christopher Ashe in his commentary says this, However deep our suffering, it is unlikely that our experience can ever do more than very approximately mirror Job's. We have neither been so great as Job, nor so fallen, neither so happy, nor so lonely, neither so rich, nor so poor, neither so pious, nor so cursed. 
So again, if I, I think if we don't get some sense of loss, what does that look like? What does that feel like? We're going to miss major points of Job. When uh, Kathy was pregnant with our first daughter, Rachel, so a long time ago, they were doing birthing classes. All the gals that led the all the leaders of the class were gals. And they basically were warning husbands, I kid you not, <laughs> that the wife you think you know may turn into a monster in the process of delivery. And so don't worry about what she says or what she calls you or what she threatens to do to you. It was, seriously, it was a warning. Just prepare yourself. And they said, your wife's going to be in pain that you, don't, you, just, you just can't imagine. But they said, Here, here's try. And so they said, take your lower lip and pull it out as far as you can. Have you guys ever, anybody else heard this? Take your lip, pull it out as far as you can. Okay, now pull it out farther. Now pinch it as hard as you can. The guys are, we're doing it, right? We're doing it. We want to be with them. Uh, does that hurt? Yes, that hurts. And she said, now rip it backwards over your head. <laughs> I was like, can you enter in? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Uh, for Job, Job 3.25, he says, The thing I fear comes upon me, what I dread befalls me. For you, for me, for us, what would those things be? What would that look like and what would that feel like? Unless we can feel some of that, we're going to miss a major point in the life of Job. Uh, listen, and, and I just want to walk us through some of what Job says is, what did the loss feel like? What did his loss feel like? Now, he didn't take his own life, right? But listen to what he says. And I'll bet if you've suffered much, if you live life long enough here, you're going to suffer. And, and I'll bet you can identify with a lot of what Job is saying here. Job says, this is Job 3, 3. Hopefully all of these are on your uh, scripture or your study sheet. They won't be on the overhead. He said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. So he said, Lord, if you could, would you just take away the day I was born or go back even further, remove the day of my conception so my birth was never even a possibility. Let the stars of that day be dark. Let it hope for light but have none. He's cursing the day of his birth. Uh, Nor see the eyelids of the morning because it didn't shut the doors of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. Job feels so bad. I'll bet most of us at some point have felt this bad, right? A death would be better. Or you know better yet, even go back further, I wish I'd never been born. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. You know, if I could go back and have my way, I'd never exist, he says. Now he goes on, he says, but if I was born, I was conceived, I was born, then I wish I'd simply died at birth. This is verse 11. Why didn't I die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I would nurse? For, and listen to this, I would have lain down and been quiet. I, I would have slept. I would have been at rest. Why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? says, if I was born, why couldn't I have just died at birth? And I love that imagery. You know, when people are really depressed, you know what they want to do? They want to sleep. Because sleep is escape. You know, not dead, but unconscious. I'm really depressed. I'm really distressed. 
I just want to sleep. That's what he said from birth. If I, could, if I was born, why couldn't I have just come out and slept? He goes on in that passage to say, I would have lain down with kings and, and princes and people of great wealth. I would have been just like them. No suffering, but I'm in this place of rest. And consider what that means, by the way. So Job is saying, maybe you felt this way, Job is saying, I would trade not just my existence, but everything in it. I would trade every day of my life, every joy I've known, I'd trade my wife, I'd trade my children, I'd trade my friends, I'd trade my wealth, I'd give it all away if it would save me from suffering the loss of them now. That's, this is God's blameless servant. That's pretty low. I'd trade every good thing I've ever known for oblivion to escape the pain of the loss I have now. There's a reference for you on your study sheet to Ecclesiastes 4 that talks about the same thing. Behind here, uh, I've got a, a. There's a line on your uh, study sheet. I think at this point that uh, I have a little regret on. Let me explain that. It says believers struggle with confusion, depression, black days and nights, just like the rest of humanity. Uh, Christians don't lose our emotion and our emotional volatility, our responses to life. We don't lose that. This says it's a lie to suggest Old Testament saints or Christians today can't don't, and the qualifier here that I'll refer to, shouldn't, suffer deep loss, searing pain, debilitating confusion, and yes, crushing depression. This is my qualifier. If you and I were Jesus, or if you and I were so filled with the Spirit of God that our response to loss, like Job, was perfect, we would suffer loss, it would be deep, it would be wide, it would be grievous, but it wouldn't be sinful. There wouldn't be the element of despair in it, right? Despair or discouragement or depression born of unbelief, right? We would suffer, we would feel it, but we wouldn't sin in it. And, and this is the thing, guys, all of us sin. You, you and I are not going to do suffering perfectly. And that's, that's my point here. So we've got to be very careful about a view of life that doesn't take suffering seriously and doesn't have a gentle spirit for ourselves or for others when we find ourselves facing great loss and great pain. It doesn't mean that we're outside the will of God. Guys, Job was exactly where God wanted him. Job was in the middle of God's will, experiencing this sense of loss and pain. Now, Again, the difference is we don't suffer as those without hope. You remember 1 Thessalonians 4, somebody I know and love is a believer and they die. And Paul says, we don't suffer. There, there's, a, there's separation that's painful, but we don't, we don't suffer that loss like those without hope. We know we're going to be connected again. That's the thought here. Let me give you a few examples. William Cooper, if you see his name spelled, it looks like Cowper. William Cooper lived in the 1700s in England. He was a friend of John Newton. Uh, William Cooper uh, came to faith in Christ in an insane asylum. William Cooper suffered a debilitating depression that probably none of us here will ever experience, 
about every 10 years. Uh, William Cooper had, uh, and we'll see Job had some of this, uh, versions of this. William Cooper had nightmares so terrifying he believed he had woken into the fires of hell. T terrified him, absolutely. William Cooper wrote, among other hymns, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's side. That's a song, by the way, I hope you're here to sing with us on Good Friday. He wrote that song and he wrote others. Martin Luther faced regular bouts of deep depression. The guy on whom the Reformation hinged regularly fell into black periods of depression. His wife, on one of these occasions, came dressed like for a funeral, and all in black. And Luther says, who died? And she says, well, God must have died to explain your depression. Down and out. And not in, not in the best way, right? Not in the best way. Charles Spurgeon suffered depression most of his adult life. His take on it was this. It wasn't that it wasn't God's will for him to suffer this sense of, of hurt, of pain, of emotional angst, but he said this, the cleansing of the vessel has fitted it for the master's use. He felt like each time he fell into this slew of despond, he felt like God was preparing him for some next phase of his service and ministry. And last, Winston Churchill, and this goes to the image you see above there. Winston Churchill talked about the black dog on my back. You know, Winston Churchill, one of the most energetic guys probably ever, one of the key heroes, certainly in the last century. And when he wasn't, he had so much energy, when he wasn't busily engaged in life, he got depressed. Or when he was connected with decisions in war, you know, he was key not only in World War II, but World War I as well. There were some disastrous results, one particularly he was a part of, over 50,000 British soldiers were killed because of poor decision-making. He went into black dog days of depression. I'm just giving you some examples. Christopher Ashe, who wrote the commentary, that I used three commentaries for this study. His is the one I used the most. Christopher Ashe suffered his own emotional breakdown. It took two or three years for him to come out of it. In fact, he's the author of a book that I think Mark, or no, Larry shared with Mark and I a couple years ago, reading his book on people who had emotional, nervous, mental breakdowns, and how to avoid that was what got Mike's attention to say, I've got to make some changes in my life to avoid doing this too. He says this, Job 3 is a very important chapter for contemporary Christianity. There's a version of Christianity around that is shallow, trite, superficial, happy, clappy, as some put it. It is a kind of Christianity that, as has been said, would have Jesus singing a chorus at the grave of Lazarus. We've all met it. Easy triumphalism. We sing of God in one song that, in His presence our problems disappear. In another, that my love just keeps on growing. Neither was true for Job in chapter 3, and yet he was a real and blameless believer. So again, we want to be careful about how we entertain thoughts about our own challenges in loss and suffering or those of others. And I'm convinced too, friends, a lot of us simply shut ourselves down emotionally. Uh, do you guys do this? Uh, you, you numb yourself to the world around you. You just, you turn it off. 
so you don't feel it. But this is the problem. In, in fact, I think, you know, Americans, I think just the Western world generally tends to be emotionally constipated, right? We hold things in that we're not supposed to. The Middle Eastern cultures in which the Bible was written, they, they don't have that problem. They emoted, they felt things. If we're not willing to feel what those losses feel like, friends, my, my thought is this, we won't be able to feel the, the, the highest highs in the joys of life as well. We'll live in a mucky middle that's manageable, but not emotionally satisfying. Job continues with what, what did his life feel like? He says, that my vexation, if you could weigh it, vexation is sorrow, grief, it's anger. A lot of times when we have great loss or a sense of despair or depression, we're angry. We're angry at what life has brought us or what God's allowed. He said, if you could weigh it, if you could put my destruction in the balances, it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Some sense of being crushed or weighed down is common for people suffering loss. He says next, he says, I feel like God has taken poisoned arrows and I've become his pincushion and the poison has seeped into my bones. I'm dying from the inside out. I'm being crushed from the outside in. That's his experience. The weight of the world, God's poison in his bones. He says in chapter 6, verse 8, Oh, that I might have my request, if God would answer a single prayer, God would fulfill my hope that it would please God to crush me. That would be my comfort. If God would just crush me, kill me, end my life, He'd put me out of my misery. That'd be the best thing I can think of, Job says, right now. I've shared this before, and it certainly does not approach anything of Job's life, but <laughs> they were trying times when Kathy and I were married in the first decade or more, we just had very little money. That's an overstatement or an understatement. Uh, we, we never missed paying our bills on time. We always had food on the table. We always had a home. We had everything God says that is required for contentment. But we just didn't have anything else. And you know, I'm a young guy trying to raise a family. You know, I, I, don't, think I've, I don't think I'm greedy, but I'm just trying to take care of business at home, trying to be generous. And uh, every time I prayed, about this and this was for years I prayed about this the image in my mind was I'm in the ocean I'm off the shore water too deep to stand in and I'm, I'm right here and I'm bobbing with the waves and and I would just tell God my prayer was the same every time God would you push me under and drown me or would you get me out on shore would you do anything except leave me where I'm at and and he chose to leave me where I was at for a long time you know because it was formative right because because I was where he wanted me because there was character formation there were lessons he wanted me to learn out of that time that I didn't want to learn not that way not through that process Job says in Job 7 verse 3 he says I'm allotted months of emptiness that's his experience lasted at least months he says, nights of misery are apportioned to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? But the night is long and I'm full of tossing till the dawn. Have any of you guys that have been sick lately had this experience? When I got sick, I, I, I longed for night so I could lie down and feel, and, and not feel, I guess. But you know, I'd sleep for two or three hours, then I'd wake up and I'd toss and turn the rest of the night 
And then I longed for day so that the tossing and turning of all night would end. So then I'd just be lying in the, the sofa or the recliner suffering through the day. And, and that cycle just goes back and forth. That's what Job's saying. I can't sleep. But he says, problem is when I do sleep, see this in 7, 14, and 15, when I do sleep, you, speaking to God, you scare me with dreams. You terrify me with visions. So that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. When I finally get to sleep, God, I feel like you're terrifying me with these dreams, with these nightmares. And finally, he says in 7.5, my flesh is clothed with worms and dirt. My skin hardens. Then it breaks out afresh. And on top of that, physically I'm sitting here when one oozing sore closes up, another bursts open, and I'm scraping that clear again. Job experienced the greatest kinds of joy any of us can know on earth in the blessings of his family, his friendship, his wealth, his ability, if you remember a former lesson, to provide for the need, the helps of others, and walking in relationship with God and feeling the good of it. And yet, he says, in light of the pain and the loss that that brought, he says he'd give it all away just not to feel what that loss felt like. So, if you find yourself, and guys, for many of us, this will probably be a lesson for another day. You know, a lot of times we'll hear something, we'll say that doesn't apply to me today. And you know what? I hope it doesn't. I hope it doesn't apply to you for a long time, or me. But in the future, or for someone else that you know or you meet, uh, this may, may come in handy later. If you find yourself in a place of great grief or great loss, if you feel depressed, or it seems the demands of life are greater than your ability to cope, do not assume you're out of God's will. Don't assume because that's going on that you're not right where God wants you. That's a bitter pill to swallow, by the way. That I could be suffering and this is what God intends for me. That's a possibility. Listen to this from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is one of the key Old Testament prophets. He's called the weeping prophet. And Jeremiah, from his youth, was God's prophet to speak to the nation of Israel. And essentially, uh, Jeremiah had a prophet of judgment. Uh, Jeremiah's message to Israel was, God's going to judge you and you're not going to repent. Jeremiah was hated by most. He was in prison. He was abused. Jeremiah lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the temple burn and destroyed, the place that he delighted to gather with God. He saw the inhabitants of Jerusalem slaughtered by the Babylonians. He saw all of that. This is what he said in Jeremiah 9.1. He said, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. You guys ever had that where you think, maybe this is more guys than gals, if I could just have a good cry, I would feel better. You know, a lot of times when people cry, they say, uh, oh, don't cry. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, tears are something God gave us. It's, it's a way of feeling relieved of stress and sorrow. And Jeremiah says, I wish I could just have a really good cry. And all that sense of loss and sorrow would just flow out with my tears says later in Lamentations, he says, and listen to the comparison again with Job's experience. I just want to say, this is just another example, Jeremiah is God's man. He's God's prophet. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's right where God wants him, and this is his experience. 
I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. I felt his judgment because I'm part of his people. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. My God has done these things to me, he says. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Not only is he abusing me, Jeremiah says, but he's nowhere to be found. Just like Job, I'm calling for him, but he won't answer. He's like a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and he tore me to pieces. He's, he's just describing what this felt like to him. This rupture in his understanding of his relationship with God. He says he's made me desolate. He bent his bow. He set me as a target for his arrow, just like Job. He says he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become a laughingstock of all the people's. He says, I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. That's Jeremiah. That's one of the key Old Testament prophets. Now, if you've suffered in extreme, and if you've ever felt as if all life was drained, you're in good company because you're with the likes of Jeremiah and Job and ultimately with Jesus. And, and guys, one of the things we need to remember, when you suffer as a Christian, you never suffer alone. It's an impossibility. You may feel that. But this is where theology comes in. Uh, no Christian should, no Christian has to, suffer as if God doesn't still exist, doesn't love them, and isn't with them. And that's, what again, the difference between uh, our suffering and the suffering of others who don't know Christ will be that we don't suffer as those who have no hope. That's the key distinction. So we often talk about Jesus on the cross, and we will here in just a second, but what, what did it feel like for God the Father? Think of Abraham and Isaac, perhaps, in Genesis. Abraham the father laying his son on an altar to slay him. What did it feel like for God the Father? He's omnipotent. He's eternal. What he feels in his emotions, he feels fully, perfectly, completely. What did it feel like for God the Father when he withdrew his fellowship from Jesus on the cross? What did that feel like? There'd never been any separation there. Jesus was in the middle of God's will. He was suffering at God the Father's command. What did it feel like for the Father to withdraw from Jesus on the cross? You know what? We don't know. And we can't know. We're not omnipotent. We're not eternal. You and I can't get there. But this is to say that the Father that loves us, that allows loss and suffering in our life, He has suffered more than any of us can or will. He is not indifferent to suffering. He knows what it feels like. What about Jesus? All he did <laughs> was come down to honor the Father, right? Come to earth, obeyed his Father, did all the things that pleased his Father, knowing what's going to happen on the cross. But what did it feel like? Knowing something's going to come is not the same as suffering through it, right? That's different. We may fear something, but then we get in it and we feel it. 
so that you've got this, and this is, this is the most pathetic words ever uttered on the earth, Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a verbal expression, but can you and I plumb the depths of what that felt like for Jesus when he says, why have you forsaken me, Father? We can't get there. This is to say, our God is not indifferent to our suffering. Our God has suffered in depths and breadths that you and I will never see. Can't get to thank God for that. The thing for you and I is that when we suffer, we're never alone. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says, I'm always with you even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13 quotes that and says, we can have, if we have food and covering, we can be content because he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. For the Christians, suffering is hard. Psalm says, uh, weeping lasts for a night, joy comes in the morning. There's a sense of hope, sense of hope. Christopher Ashe again says this, uh, comparing Job's sufferings, and we could say our own, to Jesus's, he says this, all of Job's suffering points to a fulfillment greater and deeper than your life or mine. Job, in his extremity, is actually but a shadow of a reality more extreme still, of a man who was not just blameless but sinless, who was not just the greatest man in a region, but the greatest human being in history, greater even than merely human, who, attempted, who emptied himself of all his glory, became incarnate, went all the way down to a degrading, naked, shameful death on the cross whose journey took him from eternal fellowship with the Father to utter aloneness on the cross. He concludes the story of Job is a shadow of the greater story of Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. That's where all of this ultimately leads, right? It's good to know Job. It's good to know about Job. But what we really need is Jesus. And all of the Old Testament and all those saints and all those prophets are always pointing us towards Christ. So, if you know a friend or a family member, or if you find yourself in this sense of suffering, the slew of despond, my compass is broken, I feel like I pray and don't know where God's at, you're in good company. You're walking in the fellowship of the saints and the holy ones, just like Jeremiah and Job have gone before us. The, the thing for us is we don't suffer as those without hope. And you'll see this in, Jer uh, excuse me, in Job's conversations. They are punctuated with verses about his ultimate hope and trust in God. We've already read for resurrection, that God would resurrect him, that he would see God in his glory. He says, even if he slays me, I am trusting him. And this is what Jeremiah said in Lamentations. He said, remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. I feel poisoned internally. I'm just crumbling. He says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. In the midst of that desolation, he says, my hope is this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. That's where you and I live today, that same place. That's where Job lived, it's where Jeremiah lived, it's where the New Testament saints live as well. If you're a believer, when you're in those positions of suffering, 
We need to be gentle with ourselves. We need to speak the truth and love to ourselves. Remind ourselves of passages like this. This doesn't mean God doesn't love me. This doesn't mean I'm outside God's will. And my Savior is with me in my suffering. If you're not a Christian and you try to go through the sufferings of life and life will throw you sufferings, you're, you're not going to have the kind of help that God means you to. And, and beyond that, you end up in a, a form of suffering, separation from God forever that no one wants. A form of suffering that never ends. So Christ is the answer. Whether we're a believer going through deep trials, if we haven't yet come to Christ, you can do that today. We simply accept the free gift of eternal life he offers us in his son. So this is, we want to be careful. We want to have a serious faith that's adequate for loss and suffering. Also knowing that God's with us in the midst of that. Father, thanks that your word is true. Father, thanks that it reflects the realities of life. God, help us to be serious students of you and your word. Help us to glorify you in times of great delights and joys. Help us draw near to you, Lord, in times of great loss and suffering. And Lord, help us to be uh, visions, carriers of your grace and peace to others when they're suffering as Job and Jeremiah or perhaps as we have suffered in the past. Thank you that we have an eternal hope that doesn't disappoint. In Jesus' name, amen.